specific style of music by which we say, I can only worship to this and not that, we might worship music more than Christ. Now, I'm not saying we can't have our own preferences. Preferences are perfectly acceptable and good. But if we worship Christ, then it is the singing of Christ and about Christ and to Christ that will cause our hearts to well up in worship. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Daniel, chapter 5. And as you do, I just want to give a couple of quick announcements, uh, things that I think are important, and so I want to highlight them. I was reminded as the QMU was announced, the quarterly ministry update was announced in the video announcements today, we have been working at greatly shortening those agendas. So you can and should expect a shorter meeting for that. I also want to highlight and maybe draw some importance to the Family Fun Day coming up. March 13th, one of the things that we want to have for the kids in, uh, in the church is, is just to be and participate in a community that is compelling to them. And one of the ways we can do that is by drawing them into places where adults are, but also by a drawing adults into places where, where kids are. And so that Sunday, uh, we're going to uh, we're going to do a couple of things. We're going to invite parents particularly, but, but really probably more than just parents could come and see and participate in the children's ministries that day. Go with your kids to their classes, see what they're doing, how they're learning, what they're learning. I think you'll be encouraged. Later that day, we'll do a service project as, uh, as a church, and, and I would not underestimate the power of serving together. Um, especially across generations. So plan on joining us for that service project and for dinner. Uh, The Prospect Food Drive, uh, it's really not a food drive. That's probably not the right way to say it, but that's what I put in my notes. Uh, Next week is our week to to help supply uh, kids who need a meal. And so uh, you should watch your inbox early this week um, to, to see an email of what we do need and what we don't need because... There are some things that we have a lot of and some things we don't have much of, so we'll be communicating all of that. Uh, Inside of your worship folder, anybody have a worship folder handy? Is there a little card in there with a survey QR code? Should be, yeah, that. Pull that out. Take a look at that. Uh, We have uh, partnered with... um, uh, Church Answers, that's Tom Rainer's organization, um, to, uh, to do this survey, and we would like everybody to participate in that. Uh, you should be able to get a Q- yes, if you're at home, you can pull out your phone and scan that QR code. It takes about 20 minutes to complete this survey about the church. It is entirely anonymous. You don't even have to put your information in at all. You just go to the link, you answer some questions, takes about 20 minutes, and we'll get some feedback. Now, uh, let me answer the question of why we want to do this at this time. And that is just thinking about the last five years. Trinity's been through a lot uh, between pastoral uh, pastor leaving, uh, a hiring process, COVID, uh, changes to our constitution and leadership structure, a new pastor. It's, it's a lot of change. And, uh, and we just want to take a pulse on the church. How are you feeling about things? Where are areas that we need to give uh, special and particular attention to? Um, we, we care about your thoughts about the church. I hope you know that my office is open anytime 
uh, to come and talk to me about things, but this is just an opportunity for us to say, hey, here's what we're doing really well and want to keep doing really well, and here's some things we need to give some time and attention to. So if you would take 20 minutes this week uh, and fill that out, I would be grateful. And then lastly, just thinking in terms of giving as part of our, uh, our regular worship, we're looking to the next year. Um, we're through all the last five years, as, as all of us know, we're a smaller church than we once were, and that's okay, but the budget has to be considered. And so we're, uh, we're thinking about how do we trim the budget, how do we cut budgets, how do we, uh, how do, we do better at, at spending and getting uh, money to ministry and particular things. So um, we're trying to do our part, uh, but, but giving is part of our regular worship. If you're a guest, we, we don't want you to feel obligated to give. But, but as regular members and attenders of, of Trinity, hopefully attenders moving towards becoming members, we want to give. And so if you, if you don't give, maybe it's time to take your first step and to give something and see how, what God does with that in your own hearts. And if you give uh, occasionally, it might be the time to consider giving regularly. And if you give regularly, um, it may be time to consider how to give sacrificially because that's what scripture commands of us. We, uh, not because I'm standing up here uh, begging for money. If you already give sacrificially, that's wonderful. I'm not here to put a guilt trip on anybody, but just to remind us that though we don't pass a plate anymore, giving is still part of what we do as a church, as we worship. Let's pray and then we will look to God's word in Daniel chapter five. Heavenly Father, uh, we just thank you for the opportunity to be together, to sing your praises. Uh, Lord, let it be the truth of what we sing that moves us to worship, the truth of, of our sinfulness, of your love and affection for us, of Christ's willingness to become one of us and die for us and be raised again victoriously for us that we might not only have his death count as our death, but his life count as our life and be secured in heaven forever with you. So Lord, may we, uh, may we always richly sing of, of him and all that he has done for us. Lord, we, um, we ask that you would make us, uh, not just in terms of what goes on in the church, but in our own lives daily with, uh, with people around us and in the community, make us generous, generous with our finances, generous with our time and efforts and energy, generous with, uh, with the gospel, quick to give it away, Lord, uh, that we might share what you have given us with others. Lord, we pray this morning for, uh, for Moment Church, and we just thank you for uh, opportunities to, um, to just spend some time with some of their people and, and their pastors recently. And uh, Lord, I thank you for the way that you're challenging them and us. Lord, may we both be churches that preach the, the true gospel from here until you return, Lord. We want to speak uh, uh, highly of Christ and of his, his death in our place and of his resurrection. And so, Lord, would you make both us and them willing and quick to go out and to, uh, to share the gospel, Lord, that as we and they gather as a church, that our, our time would be for the church and for the health and growth and life of the church. And then as we scatter out into the world where you have sent us in our places where we live and work and and play, and, and all of those things, Lord, would you help us to be in the world for the world, that we might be a witness to you as we speak to Christ. Lord, we want to pause again as we are gathered peacefully, as we are gathered warmly, as we are gathered without fear, 
to pray for uh, not only the people of, but also the church in the Ukraine. And Lord, we know that you have uh, even made, that they have made headlines for the boldness of their faith. Uh, both some of the, uh, the Christians in the military and just in, in the community. Lord, we know that there's nothing more threatening to totalitarian regimes than the belief in a God who is sovereign over all people. And yet that is what we see in the the book of Daniel, that kingdoms come and kingdoms go, that you raise up kings and kingdoms. And we have to to confess, Lord, that, that we don't understand. We don't understand why by your sovereign power you would allow things like this to happen. But we do know, we can understand that that according to your word, you are working all things out for your glory and and the good of those who love you. And and Lord, may may we never set our own finite, limited human understanding up over you and then expect you to bow down before our understanding. Lord, we don't have to understand Understanding of, uh, of your ways, which are so far above us, is neither a requisite for obedience nor faith. And so we, we bow faithfully before you and say we confess your goodness, we confess your sovereignty, we confess your, uh, your control over all things even when we don't understand. Lord, there has not been a more heinous crime in history than to put to death the Lord of glory. And yet it is in that moment that you glorify yourself the most and you offer us our greatest good and forgiveness of sin. And so, Lord, may we look to the cross and see where it seems like evil triumphs. You you are doing things beyond our understanding and comprehension. And so we declare to ourselves your, your goodness in all things, even in the difficulties of those situations. And yet, Lord, at the same time, we are commanded in 1 Timothy 2 to, to pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead peaceful and quiet, godly and dignified lives. And Lord, we pray that here in the U.S., That the freedoms we have would lead us as your people to godly, dignified, quiet lives where we are able to proclaim the gospel into the world. But Lord, we pray that for believers in Russia. We pray that for believers in Ukraine. We pray that for every government everywhere. That your people would live in such a way, even when there's turmoil, as to show those around them that, that our hope is not in this life. And that as believers, we can know and be certain because of Christ that we will fly away to glory. And So may that be a great testimony here and there. And yet, Lord, we also ask for peace. We ask for an end to these things. We ask for wisdom for leaders around the globe as they make efforts to, uh, to put an end to these things. Lord, we want to pray for some of our missionaries who are near to there, the Nafziggers, as they minister to the military in Germany. Lord, there must be a, a heightened sense of, uh, of maybe fear or concern there and, and, and of, of wonder about what will happen next. Lord, we pray also for the Rubishes. Uh, we're grateful for the Christmas that they had with their family, both here in the States and in Germany. We thank you for the opportunities there. But we pray for them in Sri Lanka. We pray for the political situation there 
that you would, whatever is going on there and I don't understand, that you would uh, just give the church opportunity to flourish and grow there. Lord, we pray for their grandchild that's due this month or maybe has even been born, I don't know. We pray for health and ultimately, Lord, for faith. We pray that you would give their family generation after generation of faithfulness to you. As they're working on another round of visas, we pray that you would give them both patience and success in getting those visas. And Lord, we pray with them for faithful Bible teachers in Sri Lanka, that the church would be uh, unified and strengthened and strong under the teaching and preaching of your word, and that your people would love your word, and that those those churches would be uh, quick to share the gospel with those around them. Lord, help us today to understand your word, to submit to your word, to delight in it. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's been a unique time for us in history to see how quickly we forget history. Um, this, this situation in the Ukraine is startlingly similar to the start of World War II. As Germany invaded Czechoslovakia, and the world watched and said, there's no need for military action here. This is, this, we'll do what we can, but ultimately this will resolve itself. And It did not resolve itself. And force was delayed. And the end was World War II and two atom bombs. I'm not saying we're on the brink of World War III. Neither am I saying that we should go invade and try and stop Russia. I don't know what the answers are, but I do think that, that we, we love to see the word unprecedented in the news. When things aren't so unprecedented. We, we hear about how uh, unprecedented this pandemic is when a, a quick survey of history, even over the last hundred years. I mean, crud, Woodstock happened during a pandemic. We quickly forget that pandemics are not unprecedented and new. We think sexual perversion in the world and, and the push for it to be acceptable is new, except we find, uh, particularly in the book of Romans and in 1 Corinthians, the exact same struggles that we're facing in our culture and society today were front and center 2,000 years ago. And maybe God was right when he wrote through the hand of Solomon that there is nothing new under the sun. But in our lifetimes, even for many of the older generations, uh, what we're seeing right now is something that we haven't faced before. And so we think, oh, this is new. Oh, this is different. Oh, nobody's faced these things before. And so it seems new. But Daniel 5, events that happened uh, some 2,500 plus years ago, remind us that things are not always new. Daniel chapter 5, and so we're going to look, as I've titled this sermon today, at age-old problems. Age-old problems. Daniel 5, uh, we pick up with a new king. We laugh, left off last week at the end of Daniel chapter 4, and Nebuchadnezzar was the king, and he seems to have genuinely surrendered to Yahweh, to the God of, uh, well, the only God. And then we come to chapter 5, and Belshazzar is the king. 
Belshazzar calls Nebuchadnezzar his father, but that is probably in the sense that we would call George Washington a forefather, uh, not literally or biologically his father, but still nonetheless king in, um, in Babylon. And as we work our way through this text, one of the things we're going to have to understand is from the close of chapter 4 at verse 37 to the start of chapter 5, about 30 years has elapsed. And things are different in Babylon. And things are different for Daniel. Let's pick up there in chapter 5, verse 1, and we will work our way through this chapter. Belshazzar, the king held a great feast for 1,000 of his nobles. Interestingly, one of the things I should say at the start, because it plays out in irony throughout this book, but the name Belshazzar means Bel, or the god of Babylon, sometimes in history called Marduk. Bel, save the king. And Bel is incredibly unable to save the king when Yahweh declares what will be. Belshazzar, Bel saved the king, the king, held a great feast for 1,000 of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. We should understand this to be a big, drunken party. It is not a small thing. And when Belshazzar tasted the wine, he said to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father or his forefather, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. This is not incidental. This is mocking. This is a declaration of what Belshazzar worships. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and, here it is, praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. They praised the gods of materialism. It does not sound too different from the world we live in today. Suddenly, the fingers of a man of a man's hand came out and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the splendor of the king's face changed, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees were knocking against each other. The king called out loudly to bring the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners. The king answered and said to the wise men of Babylon, any man who can read this writing and declare its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and rule with power as third ruler in the kingdom. I think one of the things we need to understand here, and great attempts have been made to try and figure out what was written on the wall, and, and there's some pretty uh, amazing guesses out there. And we're not going to take time today, but there's, uh, th there's those who would argue, in fact, many who would argue for a system of symbols. Now, um, in, in America, and, and particularly as Western thinkers, we think in a base 10 system. 
That is not how the Babylonians thought. They thought in a base 60 system. And so it's ab- we're able to kind of guess at maybe some symbols that could have been written on the wall that end up being translated by Daniel later. Uh, that's not really that important. So why then do I bring it up? Because we shouldn't think that what's likely written on the wall here is words and nobody can understand the words. But, that, but probably some kind of symbolic meaning or code that nobody is able to understand until God gives Daniel understanding. So this is, this is not um, uh, legible words that are being written here. Most likely. Let's keep going. Then the king, all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and the splendor of his face changed further, and his nobles were perplexed. The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen answered and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you, or the splendor of your face be changed. There is a man in your kingdom, in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. She's clearly getting it wrong. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, was found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, set him as chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I have heard about you, that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now, the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me, that they might read this writing and make its interpretation known to me. But they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you are able to read the writing and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will rule with power as the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, I love this answer, let your gifts remain with you. Or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the writing to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O king, the most high God granted the kingdom, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. And because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue feared and were in dread before him. Whomever he wished, he killed. And whomever he wished, he kept alive. And whomever he wished, he raised up. And whomever he wished, he made low. But when his heart was raised up, and his spirit became so strong that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne, and his glory taken away from him. 
He also was driven away from the sons of men, and his heart was made like that of beasts, and his place of habitation was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of the sky until he knew that the Most High God is the powerful ruler over the kingdom of mankind, and that he set up over whomever he wishes, and that he sets up over over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not made your heart lowly, even though you knew all this. Belshazzar is not ignorant here. The plea at the end of chapter 4 from Nebuchadnezzar is, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. And Belshazzar, knowing all of this, as as Daniel recounts the story of what happened for us, as recorded in Daniel chapter 4, tells Belshazzar, you knew all of this, and yet, rather than humbling yourselves, you have exalted yourself. So much so that he's willing to take the vessels used for worship in the temple of God and use them in his own way in false worship. Verse 23, but you have raised yourself up against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of gold, of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. It's interesting to me that all of these gods that they worship are the same materials used in the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of that represented these kingdoms that would replace Babylon. He's worshiping these these gods of all these materialistic things, and yet these very materials he's, he's worshiping, God used in a dream of Nebuchadnezzar, his forefather, to say, look, kingdoms come and kingdoms go, this kingdom is going to fall, and so is the next, and the next, and the next, and the next. You, you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or know. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and all your ways, you have not honored. All these gods that don't see and hear or know anything, you've worshipped, but you've ignored the God who controls your life, your kingdom, your future, all things. Then the hand was sent from him, that is, from this God, and this writing was inscribed. Now this is the writing that was inscribed. Many, or really it's mina, mina, tekel, a parson. And you may get different uh, translations there based upon how they're transliterated. This is the interpretation of the message. Mina, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. The, the, you, you may have heard of the, the term or, or the measure somewhere else of, of a mina, of a, of a measure of, of money. Um, that, that's this word here. It is, it is a really, really similar. This word mina, uh, Belshazzar would have understood. It literally means to number. So whatever the first symbol was, or the first two symbols, Daniel says this is the interpretation. These first two symbols are representative of mina, 
to measure, and God has, or to number, that is. God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. The next symbol was representative of, of tekel, which is uh, to weigh. You have been numbered, and your kingdom has come to an end. Uh, tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found lacking. And Paris, which sounds remarkably similar and is connected to Persia, means to divide. Interestingly, the the Persian or the Medo-Persian empire was a divided empire between the Medes and the Persians. And they're, they're the ones who are coming in next, by the way. Your kingdom has been divided, Paris means to divide, and given over to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar said the word, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that now he would be the third powerful ruler in the kingdom. But that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Belshazzar has a party, a drunken feast. He brings in that which is supposed to be used for the worship of the one and only holy God. And he uses it in his drunken feast to worship his materialistic gods. God sends a hand that writes on the wall. And Daniel comes in at the advice of the queen and interprets this and basically tells him, you've been weighed You've been measured, you've been found wanting, your kingdom and your life is gone. Because you knew better, but you did not heed what happened. You did not heed what happened to Nebuchadnezzar and his advice. And so, I want us to see as we live in the world we live in today, five reminders from the book of Daniel. Number one, flaunting rebellion isn't a new problem. Flaunting rebellion isn't a new problem. It is trendy to buy churches and turn them into bars or restaurants or hotels. We tend to think that this flaunting uh, public rejection of God is new. And that's because in our lifetime, even the oldest among us can remember a time when Christianity was favorable. But it is no longer, but this is not a new problem. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21 remind us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We suppress the truth with sin because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks, to, or give thanks but they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish heart was darkened. God has made himself obvious, not only in his word, but in his creation. And we, with our sinfulness and our desire to deny God, we, we reject him and suppress him with, uh, with sin. 
The natural state of fallen man is to suppress the truth of God and then to flaunt in rebellion. Alistair Begg says this. He says, so our age is in a sense no different to any other since Genesis 3 or to this scene at the opening of Daniel 5. We take what God has given and then announce that we don't like God or his ways. So we will not believe in him. Now, he he says some things that, that might be remarkable temptations for us. We'd rather have a God who agrees with us and with how we want to behave. A God who is accessible and malleable. A God who we can keep or change as we wish. A God who answers to us rather than answering to him. This is a very contemporary perspective, and yet it is also a very Daniel 5 perspective. We've just changed the names of the gods. Flaunting rebellion against God, setting ourselves up and our own kingdoms, even using what he has given us for the worship of him to openly and outright reject and deny him is not a new problem. It might feel new to us, but God's an expert in leading his people through times like this. Number two, exclusion from the mainstream isn't a new problem. Exclusion from the mainstream isn't a new problem. We we can probably, most of us, remember times, even not that long ago, we've been watching a couple TV shows that are only about 20 years old that make regular references to Scripture, to God, even if they're used wrongly. Guess what you won't see much of in modern television? Anything like that. The mainstream, the mainstream media, television, movies, entertainment industry is not willing to, at this point, accept much of anything from God except to reject it, to mock him, and to push away any who would embrace it. And this is not new because in chapters or verses 11 and 12, when the queen comes in, she doesn't even use Daniel's name. She doesn't say, oh, king, call Daniel, he'll help. She's like, oh, hey, king, remember your forefather, Nebuchadnezzar, he hauled some people out of Jerusalem, and, and one of those people who he hauled out of Jerusalem, he, he put over the Chaldeans and the sorcerers, and he was, was chief among them, and, and by the way, his name was Daniel. The world, at this point, has forgotten who Daniel is. He's been sidelined. He's not holding a prominent place in Belshazzar's cabinet as he was Nebuchadnezzar's. Exclusion from the mainstream isn't a problem. And the church today is being excluded as quickly as possible from the mainstream. Alistair Begg, again in his book on Daniel, shares something from Melanie Phillips, who points out Carrie Pregene. You don't know the name Carrie Prejean? She was a woman who was denied the title of Miss USA because she was asked a question and answered stating that marriage was supposed to be a union between one man and one woman. That belief can lose you the Miss USA title. Phillips herself is not American but British, but in her book she says this, in Britain, The anti-discrimination orthodoxy of our age has led to a systematic campaign against Christians, 
particularly over the issue of homosexuality, the key area where Christians run up against social libertarianism in the public square. While true prejudice against homosexuals or anyone else is reprehensible, and we would agree with her there, right? That true prejudice against anyone is reprehensible. Prejudice, however, has been defined to include the expression of normative values in the cause of non-judgmentalism. Only those who are in favor of moral judgments based on the ethical codes of the Bible are to be judged and condemned. Isn't it interesting that the Catholic Church and the Mormon Church can take pro-life, pro-traditional marriage positions and yet receive little flack for them. But the moment an evangelical Christian stands up for those causes, they are rejected as intolerant. The world will tolerate anything except biblical Christianity. Why is that? Because the system of our world, run by the ruler of this world, as we're told in Ephesians and and in the Gospels, is Satan, knows that it is only biblical Christianity that can save people. And everything else is not dangerous. Everything else poses no threat to Satan's kingdom. To his desire to haul as many people to hell with him as possible. It is only biblical Christianity. It is only those who judgments are, whose judgments are based on the ethical codes of the Bible that are to be judged and condemned. The world is tolerant and non-judgmental of everything but God. Why? Because he is true. And he stands against them all. And so when we worship him, when we follow him, when we believe him and obey him, we should expect that exclusion from the mainstream will happen. And throughout history, it has ebbed and flowed. Uh, God's people have been embraced and then rejected and then embraced and then rejected and embraced and then rejected. And we shouldn't be caught off guard as we see here in Daniel 5 that following a time in history where God's people and his word and his ways were embraced, we cycle into a time of rejection. We should not be caught off guard when the world flaunts its rebellion against God, and we shouldn't be caught off guard when they exclude us from the mainstream. The question is, how will you respond when you're sidelined in the culture? When you're passed over for a promotion at work because of what you believe? When you're no longer allowed to have a position of influence in the community or the school. What will happen? How how will you respond when you are sidelined in the culture? And maybe more important, how will you respond when you go from sidelined back to mainstream? Which brings us to our next point in Daniel. Don't be fooled. The world has nothing to offer. Don't be fooled. The world has nothing to offer. Daniel goes from the mainstream to being sidelined, and then in one event, directed by God, right back to the mainstream. He's brought right back into the presence of the king, and he said, hey, if you can make this interpretation known, if you can tell me the truth, which is what God's people are tasked to do, 
If you can tell me the truth, I will give you gold, which is wealth. I will make you third. I will give you power and you will rule. That's obviously power. And you will be the third ruler in the kingdom. He's offered wealth. He's offered power. He's offered prestige. And what's Daniel's response? Sign me up. I've been sidelined long enough. Finally, God's people are welcome back in the mainstream. Oh, no. Look at verse 17. Let your gifts remain with you and give your rewards to someone else. Sorry, doesn't matter how much I can tell you the truth, you can't buy me. But that's not really the point. The point is Daniel understands the message. And when does Belshazzar lose his kingdom? That very night. If you knew that America was going to fall tonight and you were offered the vice presidency today, would you sign up? Probably not. But what has Daniel taught us all the way up to this point? Chapter 4, verse 34. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are, as count, are counted as nothing. He does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants like his hand. No one can strike his hand. God sets up kingdoms. He brings down kingdoms. And when the kingdoms of the world offer you power and prestige and wealth, don't be fooled. They're coming to an end. They have nothing to offer. The world will try to offer you lots of things. Maybe fame, maybe wealth, maybe power, maybe money, maybe sex. I don't know. But when the time comes, they don't really have anything to offer. And why not? Because, number four, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Look at verse 30. That same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom. Now this is a nighttime party, a nighttime drunken orgy, a nighttime feast, a nighttime mockery of God, a nighttime miracle where God sends a hand, and a nighttime interpretation. And that very night, he lost his life. How hard and how long do you think it is for the Medes, which is what Darius is, to move his entire army? It was already in the works. God had already brought them in. They had already surrounded the city. In fact, they, they came through a waterway into the city. They had probably already breached the walls. God had lined his judgment. He'd lined this kingdom up. He'd brought them in to bring low this kingdom of, of Belshazzar, this Babylonian kingdom, long before the hand showed up and long before Daniel gave its interpretation. And guess what? God has promised us that the kingdoms of this world that flaunt rebellion, that reject the truth, that try and worship the gods of silver and gold and bronze and wood and iron and clay and money and sex and power, judgment's already standing at the door. It's already coming. 
Don't be fooled. Not only does the world have nothing to offer you, but but judgment is brought in already. And ironically, Belshazzar means Bel protect the king. Well, his gods were not able to protect him that night. And we shouldn't think it's any different for us. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 through 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God has fixed the day that Jesus will judge heaven and earth the same way that he fixed the day that Darius would bring down the kingdom of Babylon. Russia, China, America, Ukraine, they will all be judged someday. And that day is as fixed by God as the day the Medes showed up to bring down Babylon. And so what is the call on our lives? It is to repent. It is to command everyone everywhere to repent. Why? Because we're all Belshazzars. Our kingdoms that we try and build personally, they're all coming to an end. We've all been put in the scales of God's perfect, holy justice and been found wanting. We all lack the ability to measure up to God's standard. Sin has destroyed and infected, affected us all, which is why we desperately need Jesus. Because when we cling to him, when we say it's not my righteousness, it's not my kingdom, it's not my power, it's not my glory that I'm going to trust to measure up God, Jesus has done that for me, I'm going to trust him by faith, I'm going to cling to him, I'm going to count on him, God stops weighing and measuring us and begins to weigh and measure Christ in our place. And in him, you're never found wanting. In him, you're never found lacking God stops weighing and measure us and weighs and measures Christ on our behalf. And how do you know that Jesus can measure up? Acts 17, 31, uh, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. How do you know Christ can measure up? Because there's an empty tomb. God didn't leave him there. He lived perfectly and sinlessly, died substitutionally and sacrificially in our place, and then was raised victoriously to show that he has the power of life, that he successfully did all that Christ wanted him, or that God wanted him to do, and that by faith we can be measured, we can be weighed, not according to ourselves, but by Christ. Oh, believers, are you clinging to the work of Christ every day? Are you clinging to his kingdom as an unfading kingdom or are you building your own? Are you trying to make sure your life measures up or do you understand that it never can and so you must cling to Christ? And if you're not, if you haven't believed, if you haven't trusted, the command on you today is to repent, to turn from your sin, your kingdom, your power, your ways, your thoughts of how you might measure up and simply cling to Christ in faith and trust. Because we're all Belshazzars. 
We've all flaunted rebellion. We've all used things like musical worship to worship our own idols. We've, we've all uh, attempted to build our own kingdoms and thought that we can live this life by our own strength. None of us measure up perfectly. And that's why Jesus came. That's why he lived and died for us. That by faith, we might measure up in him. Lord, we, we confess that it is not our kingdoms that are eternal It is not our lives that are sufficient. We have all sinned and fallen short of your glory, and the wages of sin is death. But you have sent your Son to live perfectly in our place, to die in our place, and to be resurrected, offering us newness of life. Lord, may we who who have already trusted him, may we not believe in our own kingdoms, may we not build our own kingdoms, may we not trust our own goodness or, or our own righteousness or our own perceived righteousness, but may we cling every day to Jesus. May we, may we cling to the cross and his sufficiency in our place. May we understand that, that when we trust him through faith and when we repent of our sins, that, that we are placed in him and the balance scales of justice are, are now filled with him. And he will never be found lacking or wanting. And in him we will never be found lacking or wanting. Lord, if we have not yet trusted you, may today be that day where we surrender our own kingdoms and our own righteousness for that of Christ's and cling to him for our good and for your glory in Jesus' name, amen.